Well, I'd like you to again, if you would, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23 as we continue our look at the Feast of Jehovah, uh, Leviticus 23. And uh, if you forgot to bring back your little chart, there are some spare ones on the back table across there. Um, but uh, I'd encourage you to hold on to it for the course or the duration of our studies. And uh, we'll be referring to this uh, chart from time to time uh, to go along with the the uh, messages. So I'm going to read from Leviticus 23 again. I want to just read uh, the first five verses this time. Leviticus 23 verses 1 through 5. And it begins this way. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Even these are my feasts. <clears throat> Six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest and holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is a Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. In the fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. And again, God will bless that uh, short reading to us as we meditate on this topic. Now, I want to just point out something uh, that uh, stands out to me as you read this list of seven holy days or festivals that actually he begins with something that we wouldn't necessarily consider uh, to be a special day in terms of a, a special uh, festival. And that is, he, he begins with the weekly Sabbath. The first thing that he mentions, having said, these are the feasts of the Lord, he says in verse 3, six days shall work be done. The seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, the holy convocation. I suppose if you take it all together, these are the days that they weren't supposed to work and they were supposed to think uh, about the things of God and, and contemplate on those. Um, but I also want you to notice that if you look at the very end of Leviticus 23 to um, <clears throat> verse, uh, we'll break in at verse 39, the final festival is a, again, a seventh, a seven day festival, but uh, there is a, an eighth day that's added on, which is another Sabbath. And I want you to notice that in verse 39, also in the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall there be a Sabbath. And so a simple point they want to make is that the whole system of festivals begins with a Sabbath and ends with a Sabbath. And I want to suggest to you that these Sabbaths are really a representative of something. And the idea is this, that the first Sabbath really is a reminder of creation rest. Uh, in six days, and I hope you believe that, that God spoke the world into existence in six days, and on the seventh day, he ceased from his labor. That was what we call the first Sabbath. And so God, in a sense, ceased from labor. He, uh, the work was done. It was, it was very good. There was nothing else to do. And then we have the festivals, and then at the very end, after the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're going to see as we study it, is going to picture the Millennial Kingdom. After that thousand-year period, if you like, we enter into the eighth day, the final Sabbath, which I want to suggest to you is a picture of eternal rest. When we go into the eternal state, right? And in between, 
the creation rest and the eternal rest, well, there's a lot of work being done. And that work is God accomplishing the work of redemption. In, in a sense that once uh, sin broke in on this world, uh, after uh, God had created the world, remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam uh, uh, ate uh, of the forbidden fruit, and in doing so, the world was plunged into a curse. And the thought is that, that God could no longer rest. How can God rest with a cursed world? And so God is working. And he is working to bring about a new rest, an eternal rest. And so in between we have these festivals that are going to illustrate God's work of redemption. Uh, basically from the cross, of course, the center of his work of redemption displayed in the Passover. Taking us all the way to the very end, the crown, the millennial kingdom, when the Lord Jesus will bring everything into subjection to him. And then basically we'll go in after that to the eternal state. And so just a, a scripture to throw in, in, into the mix here is John 5 and verse 17. Now, one of the things that Jesus was accused of was working on the Sabbath day. And um, uh, in this instance, in John chapter 5, uh, there was a man um, <clears throat> that um, had been uh, lame, and uh, the Lord Jesus uh, had healed him. And, of course, there was a big uh, uh, controversy concerning this. But in verse 17, the Lord Jesus says this, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. And what he's saying is, how can my father and I possibly rest when you have places like this pool of Bethesda where there are all these uh, people in such distress, the blind, the halt, the lame. How can we rest when the world is not the way it was meant to be? When, when uh, the curse is in full effect, how can the father rest? How can the son rest? We can't rest. We must work. And, of course, that work is displayed in these festivals. And, ultimately, God is going to bring about a final creation or, or eternal rest that will never be disturbed. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? The day is coming when, when this cursed world will be done with forever and there will be an eternal rest, never be disturbed again. And uh, what a great goal. And so that's what uh, our journey is going to take us really uh, in God bringing about that eternal rest, that final Sabbath that we see there. And all that's going to uh, happen uh, in the work of the Father and the Son to bring about this essential rest uh, which we're going to see. And so that's our objective. That's our goal. So we want to look now at the first festival, <clears throat> the festival what we call Passover. And we break in in verse 4, he says, These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. The fourteenth day of the first month at even is the Lord's Passover. Now again, we want to see the New Testament verification of how we're going to apply this. Because what we're saying is, this historical event that was, uh, happened back then in Israel, or in Egypt, to, to set the, the Jewish nation free, uh, also has a relevance to you and I. And uh, this is why we want to study these festivals, because the New Testament applies them and applies them to us. So if you look at 1 Corinthians... 1 Corinthians 5 with me for a moment. 
And sometimes people object to this study of typology and all this kind of stuff. And, and I, I want to make a suggestion to you uh, as we study this together. And here's my, my premise. It's impossible to properly understand your New Testament without an essential background in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Notice what he says. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, let's just say this right at the beginning here. Uh, he, is a, he is speaking to a church that is primarily Gentile. Now, I, I know it started in a synagogue. Uh, if you look at uh, Acts 18, the beginning of the assembly in Corinth started in a synagogue, but it didn't end there. Uh, in fact, they were kicked out of the synagogue and they went out and, and many Gentiles were saved. We know that because uh, he says that, that he reminds them that they were once Gentiles and they were carried away to dumb idols. So the majority of the Christians are Gentiles and yet he is telling them Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So there has to be a sense that somewhere they were instructed about the Passover or else this would make no sense to them, a group of Gentiles. So Paul clearly taught from passages like Leviticus 23 and Exodus 12, didn't he? For him to be able to say that, or even the first bit about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to look at that in detail uh, shortly, but I want you just to notice this. Uh, I mean, what does this mean without the Old Testament background? If you walk up to somebody who doesn't know anything about the Old Testament and you say, uh, God says, purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And that person looks at you and says, I'm not sure I want to be a lump. What are you talking about? Right? In other words, it's nonsense without the Old Testament background. Absolute nonsense, isn't it? But once you understand the framework back in the book of Leviticus, immediately you say, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about here. So this is why our study is so important. And I want to just encourage you to come along and stick with it because I'm going to guarantee you that when we look at these festivals and how they weave their way through the New Testament, you'll say, how did we ever understand the New Testament without getting this? It's impossible. You cannot really fully understand the New Testament without the background of the Old Testament. That's why we need a whole Bible and we need to preach from a whole Bible. So, uh, clearly, uh, is applying this to us, Christ, our Passover, even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So, so as we look at this historical event of the Passover, it is speaking clearly of Christ and the fact that he is our Passover, and well, what does that mean? How do we apply that to ourselves? Look back now at Exodus 12, because remember we said that this particular festival is a memorial festival. It's remembering a historical event. So we want to look back at the historical event, and then we'll, we, we, once we see the historical event, we realize that God intended them never to forget that event, and once a year they were to remember this uh, in their calendar, and they were to, to keep this Passover celebration. 
So Exodus chapter 12, and I want to uh, just begin in verse uh, 2, although we could, uh, well, maybe we'll read verse 1, because uh, it, 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 we see that this God speaking, uh, as we saw so dominantly in Leviticus, is also here in Exodus. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, then he says this, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months, it shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, the interesting thing is, this is in the spring of the year. And this event is so significant that God is saying, I want you to change your whole calendar. Now, can you imagine how difficult that would be? Right? We've got our calendar, right? When's New Year's Day? January the 1st, right? Okay. And so imagine some event happened in American history. Let's just think September the 11th as an example. That was a pretty dramatic day, wasn't it? Okay, so the U.S. government made a decision that that event was so significant to our history that we would make that New Year's Day and start the calendar from September the 11th. That would be pretty confusing, wouldn't it? This is exactly what God is doing here. They already had what we call a civil calendar that was set up. And now God is saying, okay, I'm going to introduce something in your history that is so radical, that is so significant, it's going to change everything. And actually, he's going to say to them, this, is going to, this month shall be to you the beginning of months. It will be the first month of the year to you. This is so significant, so it's going to change everything. Now, let me put it in a way that you'll get this. I was born on the 15th of July, 1960. Some of you are thinking, this guy's ancient. And you're th some of us are thinking, that guy's pretty young. You know, it's, just kind of, it's amazing. Perspective is everything, isn't it? 15th of July, 1960. But on the 16th of June, 1981, I came to know Christ. My Passover was sacrificed for me. And you know what? It changed everything. My life was completely changed. Right? What happened? I came to know Christ my Passover. And, and as a result of that, it, I was set free from bondage. Right? And I, I was brought into a new life. And, and great liberty. And could we dare say the pursuit of happiness? Or should I say holiness? <laughs> it, was, it changed everything, didn't it? And in a sense, the Passover was Israel's declaration of independence. If you want to put it that way, uh, you know that preamble of your constitution goes that men have certain unalienable rights. Even, even people that are immigrants will remember this because you, if you naturalize, you had to, you had to know this, right? Uh, and I was naturalized, so I know it, right? Certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For the nation of Israel... It certainly meant life, didn't it? Because what was about to happen? Remember, they, this is the context is the plagues. These plagues that passed through the land of Egypt, and there's one more coming. What is that plague coming? God has said, and let's look at chapter 11, and we'll get the background of it. Verse 5, all the firstborn, chapter 11, verse 5, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. <clears throat> From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon the throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any 
more. And so clearly what God is going to do is the, the plagues that God has brought on Egypt, against, directed against the gods of Egypt, the final one is that all the firstborn in the land of Egypt are going to die in one night. And so if you were an Israeli and you were a firstborn, you had a death sentence upon you. Just like an Egyptian, right? The sentence of death was upon you. And the only thing that could prevent your certain death was the Passover lamb. And for you and I, there's a sentence of eternal death that was upon all of us, right? Why? The wages of sin is death. And we were sinners. We had the sentence of death upon us. It was hanging over us, wasn't it? And yet we, we found life instead of death in Christ. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. We found liberty. These people were slaves in Egypt. Uh, they had been enslaved. They were making bricks in the brick kilns of Egypt. Many believe uh, some of the things that we see in Egypt today, some of the, uh, the uh, pyramids and all this, the, is, the, the Jewish slaves were working on projects like that. And they were in slavery. So it meant to them life, deliverance, through the Passover lamb and of certain death, it meant liberty. And they set off on their journey to the promised land. And you know the day you got saved? Amazing things happened, right? You got life. <laughs> we all got a life sentence, eternal life sentence. What a tremendous thing, right? Spared from eternal death. Now he who has the Son has life and has it more abundantly. We got liberty, no longer a slave to sin like we once were, now free in Christ. And, praise His name, we began our journey, not to the promised land of Canaan, but we're on our way to glory, aren't we? And uh, this is the journey that we've begun, and what a journey it is. And, and if, if getting there is half as good as the journey, it's going to be amazing. But this is, this is our right now because we came to know Christ, our Passover. So how did all this happen? Right, we've seen this is significant. The beginning of months, it changes everything. And then he says in verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of the month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And so we might say that on the tenth day of the month, a lamb had to be selected. And um, as they were to find this lamb, there were certain criteria about the lamb that they had to make sure that the lamb met certain standards. Uh, for instance, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. So, so the lamb had to be uh, without blemish. It, it couldn't be defective. It had to be a, a lamb that was seen to be a perfect specimen of a lamb. So the lamb had to be selected. And also, the lamb had to be scrutinized, we could say. It had to be checked out. Uh, because they weren't to do anything with the lamb except observe it until the 14th day when they were to kill it. Look at verse 6. You'll keep it till the 14th day of the same month and the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it, uh, of Israel shall kill it in the evening. You know, these, uh, these lambs that were selected, from what I understand reading historical documents, they kept them in the house. 
Can you imagine the firstborn? I mean, maybe the firstborn was not too old. Can you imagine the attachment, the bond to that little lamb? It would be kind of significant to watch that lamb die, wouldn't it? But they, they were to scrutinize it. And part of the reason they were to scrutinize the lamb was this. that I don't know if you've ever done this, but you've gone to a store, you picked something out, you thought it looked great, you got it home, you went back, and then you found that there was a defect in it. Right? You, just, uh, well, you didn't see it in the store, but you got it home, and maybe there was something just not right, a seam missing or something like that. And, and, uh, uh, so you had to take it back. And so the idea was that this had to be observed carefully to make sure that it really was that lamb without blemish. Now again, let's look at New Testament criteria to show how this very truth that we're looking at here back in uh, the Feast of Jehovah play out in the New Testament. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, I want you to see how the New Testament writers, their minds were greatly influenced by these Old Testament types and shadows, and you find them again and again in their writings. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he says, but, well, verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So Peter clearly applied this teaching back in Exodus and back in Leviticus 23 uh, to believers in his day and pointed out that, that Christ is that lamb that is without spot and without blemish. And, and certainly the Lord Jesus was closely scrutinized, not just for a few days, but for all of his public ministry, wasn't he? I mean, there was never a life more closely examined than the life of the Lord Jesus. And of course, it had to be without blemish. And, and so let's just draw together the conclusions of people who observed him. Let's start with the, the one opinion that really matters. That's the opinion of God the Father in heaven. What does he say? Uh, at his baptism, and that's it's significant because really uh, we've got all these hidden years that we don't really know much about. And after these hidden years, these mysterious years that we have no idea what really happened in that carpenter shop in Nazareth, but what we do have is the testimony of heaven. And so in Matthew 3.17, at the baptism of the Lord Jesus, a voice from heaven comes out saying this, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's an affirmation, isn't it? That here is a lamb without blemish. I am absolutely well pleased with him. But not only did God the Father give his affirmation, men, and many of them, weren't particularly friendly toward the Lord Jesus, but still had to affirm his perfections. So Pontius Pilate, he says, I can find no fault in him. Luke 23, verse 14. Examined closely, scrutinized, put to the test of Roman, as it were, uh, legal criteria. No fault in him whatsoever. 
And then he says, of course, take him away and crucify him, which is Roman, uh, <laughs> kind of makes you laugh at the Roman legal system, doesn't it? I can find no fault in him, take him away and crucify him. Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed him, and yet at the end of the day, in Matthew 27, 4, he says this, I have betrayed innocent blood. In other words, he, he didn't do anything. And then we look uh, at the, the testimony of the New Testament writers. And this is very interesting because we're going to start with Paul. And if anybody would have liked to at one point in his life found fault, it would have been him. And what does he say? He says, he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us. Didn't experience it. He knew no sin. Peter would say he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. John would say, in him is no sin. Of course, John put his head on the bosom of the Lord Jesus. It's almost kind of, I wonder what's in there. Well, his conclusion was, in him is no sin. And so, the, the testimony of these three great men in the New Testament is all in agreement. He knew no sin, he did no sin, in him is no sin. And, he, and here's another one. In, in John 8:46, the Lord Jesus looks at his enemies, eyeball to eyeball, and he says this, Which of you convinces me of sin? I mean, here's your chance. If you, if you want to kind of take a pot shot at me, this is the moment. Which of you? Come on, I'm waiting. It's a challenge, isn't it? Which of you convinced? And they walked away in silence. No, they couldn't find anything. If ever there was a without blemish lamb, it was the spotless Son of God, wasn't it? And, the, and Scripture affirms that absolutely clearly. And so he was the lamb that was selected, the Lord Jesus was selected from before the foundation of the world. Within, within eternity past, there was a decision made in the councils of eternity that the eternal Son of God would become that Lamb of God who was foreordained before the world began. And so the Lamb was selected, the Lamb was scrutinized carefully by God and men, and the, the testimony was the same. But then, the Lamb had to be slain. And what we learn here is this, that the perfect life of the Lamb couldn't save them. A lot of people admire the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus, but they're lost people. Because His perfect life obviously fitted Him to be the acceptable sacrifice, but he, His life alone couldn't save us. It couldn't save them. Look back to the, this, this uh, historical event and imagine they picked a perfect lamb and imagine that they admired the lamb and that everybody said it was without blemish, but imagine that in that household they didn't kill it. What would have happened when the angel of death came through that night to the firstborn in that house? No blood. They would have, they would have died. The firstborn would have perished. No matter how much they admired the perfection of the lamb. No, the lamb had to die. But I'm going to go a bit further, and I might get thrown out for saying this. But could I say this? The death of the lamb couldn't save them either. You see, think about this. Go back to that night. Okay, they admired the lamb. It was without blemish, and they killed the lamb. But what if they don't apply the blood? What happens when the angel of death comes through? 
You see, I didn't get saved till I was just before my 21st birthday, but I grew up in a home where I heard about the death of Christ from infancy. I can't ever remember a time that I did not know that Jesus died on the cross and that he died for sinners. That was my Roman Catholic heritage. I knew that. But I never, until I was just before my 21st birthday, never at one point did I apply his death and shed blood to my life. And if I'd have died at 19, I'd have been in hell. Knowing full well that Jesus died on the cross for sin. But I never applied the blood. And so here, it's telling us, yes, the lamb had to die. No question about it. And uh, I want you to notice the wording of verse 6. You shall keep it till the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. You notice the language there? How many lambs do you think were slain that night? Hundreds? But in the mind of God, there wasn't hundreds of lambs slain that night. The whole congregation of Israel shall kill it. (laughs) It was just one. In the mind of God, there's only one lamb. All these others are pictures of the true lamb of God. And so, and then of course, it says in verse 7, And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh, so on and so forth. So the blood had to be applied in order for there to be safety for the firstborn in the house. Look now, please, at verse 13 uh, of this passage. And notice what it says. It says, And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I shall pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. I want to think a little bit uh, about assurance with you for a moment. And I want you to just get the picture here. There's two separate houses, and we'll just use little boys as an example. There's two little lads who are firstborn sons in both houses. And they've already witnessed all the plagues of Egypt up to this point. They know when God said he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Because they've just witnessed one after another. It was amazing. They've seen every, And now they know the next plague is coming. And the plague is the death of the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. And it doesn't take them long to figure out, hey, that means me. <laughs> that means I'm the one who is destined to die. And so you could imagine a little bit of apprehension in their minds. And so they're asking the question, Dad... Did, did you do it right? Are you sure that lamb was without blemish? Yes, son, it was without blemish. Uh, are you sure that, that uh, the blood was drained into the basin? Are you sure that you put it rightly on the doorposts and lintels, just like God said? Yes, son, I'm sure. But, Dad, I'm scared. You can imagine why, right? This is realistic. And the father says, look, God has said. Here's the base of assurance. God has said, when I see the blood... I will pass over you. And that little boy rests that night in the assurance of the promise of God. And he goes into that room and he is just so relaxed because, hey, God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Here's another little boy and he's just as nervous. And he says, Dad, 
Are you sure you've done it right? Oh, oh yes, yeah, that lamb was without blemish. And we, 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 we put the blood in a basin and we put it on the doorpost, just as God said. But he can't rest in God's word. And all night long, he's biting his fingernails and he's, he's just he's pacing the floor and he's just... You know the interesting thing is? When the lamb, when, when the, the Passover, um, when the angel of death comes through, is that boy safe? Yeah, he's safe, isn't he? But the difference between the one boy and the other boy is, one is safe and enjoying it, right? Because he has absolute assurance. The other one is equally safe, but he's not enjoying it. Because he's not resting in the word of God. You know, I meet lots of people who are raised in Christian homes. And they've heard the gospel over and over again. And they've prayed the prayer so many times or whatever. And, you know, sometimes they really struggle with the question of assurance. And I believe that, I'm sure that many of them are really safe. They truly are saved. They're sincere. They meant what they said, but they're not really enjoying it. You know what's going to make the difference between being saved and enjoying it and saved and not enjoying it is resting on the Word of God. You see, when I was saved back on the 16th of June, 1981, John 3.16 was the verse God used in my life. And you know what? I came to this kind of conviction that if I ended up in hell, it would make God out to be a liar because it says God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed on him, and I did that, should not perish but have everlasting life. And if that didn't happen, then that would mean God lied. But you know what my Bible tells me? God cannot lie. Isn't that good? So what, what is your basis of assurance? The Word of God is a key factor, isn't it? Can you rest in the promises of God? Can you settle on the promises of God? That, well, what a difference that makes. These two little boys, one of them is just basking in the truth of the promise of God. The other one, well, he's equally safe, but he's very nervous and apprehensive. We don't want you to be nervous and apprehensive. It's much better to be enjoying security in Christ, isn't it? Through assurance. Well, the interesting thing is that as we consider this beautiful Old Testament picture, um, and we see the New Testament, Christ our Passover sacrifice for us, I want to just emphasize to all of us, in a sense, that the Lamb is the dominant theme of the Scriptures. That's why this is, it ought to grip our hearts, because it, it begins... In a sense, there's a question hanging over the Old Testament, isn't it? Genesis 22, verse 7. Remember when Abraham and Isaac go up to Mount Moriah, and they've got the wood, and they've got the fire, and they've got the knife, and a question is raised rightly by Isaac, where is the lamb? And that question kind of hangs over the Old Testament. Lots of lambs die, but where is the lamb? That's the question. Where is he? And then, in John chapter 1, verse 29, we get that beautiful verse, don't we? As John the baptizer sees the Lord Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. He's arrived. He's here, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then, that great scene in Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, where all the redeemed, 
all those that have been sheltered under the blood and the angel of death could not do anything to them because they were protected by the blood will be there in glory saying this, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Then there's one other verse that we have to think about. And that is a verse that we often don't think about. And it's in Revelation 6 and verse 16. Which tells us another side of the picture about the Lamb. It almost seems out of character for a Lamb. Because it says that in the tribulation period, there will be people who are Christ rejectors. They don't want anything to do with the lamb, and yet they still have to do with the lamb. And it says, they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And here's the irony, in a sense, that the Lamb is asking people to come and to avail of his shed blood and to, to apply it to their lives and to come into the, the blessing of it, the life, the liberty, uh, the pursuit of, of holiness that it, pr- it brings. But there are still those that will say, no, we don't want this Lamb. We don't want anything to do with him. But folks, you've got to deal with him. Every human being must deal with Jesus. And there's a day coming where they will indeed have to deal with him. But it will be the wrath of the Lamb. And they'll know who it is. (laughs) And they'll say, hide us from the wrath. But there's no hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. And so you can see how important the Lamb of God is. That's why a study like this is important because we are studying, in a sense, the very heart of Scripture when we begin to look at God's Lamb. Now, look again at Exodus 12. And I know some um, more modern translations miss this. Uh, Part of the reason is that some of them uh, are not too worried about being literal and um, they're okay for reading but not helpful for studying. And in chapter 12, verse 3, I want you to notice how the Lamb is mentioned here. Speak you unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, I I did say Exodus 12, right? Exodus 12, 3. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And so it begins with just this idea of a lamb. But I want you to notice how uh, the pronouns begin to change. And so in verse 4, it says, And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your account for the lamb. And then verse 5, we go a step further. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Now, just thinking about that, a lamb, the lamb, your lamb. There are a lot of people in the world that would view the Lord Jesus as a lamb in the sense of, well, you know, he's one of many good religious teachers and, you know, we'd put him up there. You know, I think there's a new campaign 
uh, of posters that uh, Jesus was a Muslim, you know, because they kind of recognize him as a religious teacher and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so, so there's this idea that, well, he's just one of the religious leaders out there. He's just, he's just a lamb. But as you compare him with all the religious leaders and teachers of the world, if you're really being honest, you'll have to come to the conclusion that he's not just a lamb. He's the lamb. There's nobody to compare with him. Not one. In fact, uh, in a sense, Christianity is not fair. Because, because the other religions really can't compete. Because they don't have anybody like the Lord Jesus. And so you come to that conclusion, he's not just a lamb, he's the lamb. But in one sense, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good if he's just the lamb. Because he has to become your lamb. There has to be a point in your life where you say, Lord Jesus, I'm the sinner you died to save. I want you to be my savior. I want to enter into that personal relationship with you. And it is a relationship. We're not talking about a formula. We're talking about introducing people to a real person. A living savior who, who you can enjoy throughout all eternity, but beginning now. You can know him. And enjoy Him. And He can become your Lamb. So of course it's good to ask the question. What place does the Lord Jesus have in your thinking? Is He a Lamb? Is He the Lamb? Or is He personal? Your Lamb. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to be able to say, He is my Lamb. So, we've, we've looked at the first festival. And I think, I, I'm hoping that all of you are convinced of the value of the feasts of Israel. Value in terms of our understanding of the New Testament. See, what I find, and I I was saying this to Malcolm earlier, that sometimes I can grasp the pictures easier than I can the precepts of the New Testament. <laughs> Just Maybe it's the way my mind works, but you know, the Bible does say a picture is worth a thousand wor- words. Well, this, this picture of the Passover lamb is a beautiful picture without blemish, being killed, innocent, hadn't done anything. Uh, there's a bond there. They appreciate this lamb and they have to kill it. And the blood is applied to the door and the, and the lintels. The angel of death comes through. And can you imagine the, the wailing in the land of Egypt that night in all those houses where they didn't have a lamb? Can you imagine the wailing in a coming day in all those souls, precious souls, Because they don't have the Lamb of God as their Savior. What a tragic day that will be. I hope tonight that you're thankful that you have a Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you appreciate Him, that you love Him, that you're so glad that the Lord Jesus, as perfect as He was, had to die on Calvary's cross to deal with your sin. His perfection couldn't save you. He had to be perfect to be a satisfactory satisfi- uh, sacrifice, but he still had to die on Calvary's cross. And his blood had to be applied to you, to your life personally. There had to be that point of application. And of course, the hyssop that was used, it was just a common, ordinary shrub. It was available freely for everybody. And you know what that symbolizes? Faith. 
right? How are we saved? Through grace, by faith. Simple, available to everybody. All we have to do is simply believe that Jesus died as the Lamb of God and His blood was shed for you and I and trust in Him. <clears throat> well, we've got two minutes left and it's not worth starting the Feast of Unleavened Bread in two minutes. So I think we'll just close in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful this evening for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that there was nobody like Him, that even His enemies had to acknowledge that never a man spake like this man. Uh, they would say things like, "He does. this man does all things well. Uh, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What a Savior we have in the Lord Jesus. And Father, we're thankful for the day that we heard the glad tidings, that instead of death, there was a possibility of life. Instead of bondage, there was a, a possibility of liberty and freedom. Instead of the aimless pursuit of self-satisfaction, there was a possibility of entering into a life of holiness and pursuing eternal things. Oh, Father, we're so glad for the Lamb of God. We pray if there's any here that's struggling with assurance that this night might be a night where they begin to enjoy their security in Christ, trusting in your word. We pray if there's one here that's never trusted the Lamb of God, that tonight might be the night that he's no longer just the Lamb, he becomes their Lamb, and there's a personal application. Father, would you thrill our hearts this week as we consider these festivals together? Uh, would you help us to appreciate your word and how it fits together so beautifully? Uh, would you give us a great sense of wonder at the, at the, the amazing story of your plan of redemption from the cross to the crown. We'll give you all the glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.